The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford. Deirdre Bosa is off today. Two earning CEOs this hour, MongoDB and Sentinel One, join us in just a moment. Uh, some big stories on both fronts. Then trouble in tech travel. Expedia, Trip, Airbnb booking all downgraded today by various firms. Later on, what we learned from Biden's chip trip to Arizona, John, and what that means for U.S. industrial policy. Yes, and we've got to start with MongoDB. That stock is surging the enterprise software company. I mean, I could say off the highs, but it's up about 19% this morning after reporting beats on the top and bottom lines for the fiscal third quarter. Strong guidance for the remainder of the fiscal year. Joining us now on uh, CNBC in an exclusive, MongoDB's CEO, David Acheria. Dave, uh, good morning. So th- this is the tech stock of the morning for me because of what there is to learn about the overall um, the overall enterprise space from your results. So let's start with consumption. The trends seem to have stabilized. Give some, some more color on what you saw and the difference between your Q2 and Q3, including kind of the, the selling by hyperscalers and, and ISVs that helped you out. Uh, hi, John. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, we're, what we saw in, Q- in Q3 was definitely an uptick in consumption trends, and it was broad-based across every geography as well as every uh, customer segment. So that was, uh, you know, we feel like in, in many ways that was probably a lot of people coming back off the summer holidays, coming back to work, engaging with their applications more, and, and that's what potentially drove the consumption uptick across the board. Um, and that's both at the high level as well as at the SMB space. And in terms of the hyperscalers, our relationship with the hyperscalers have never been better. They're really leaning into working with us. They recognize that MongoDB is one of the most popular technologies used in the cloud. Uh, there's massive developer adoption and people are really embracing our technology to build modern applications. And so, so you're seeing them engage with us both at the product level uh, in the go-to-market side in the field. And now each of the hyperscalers essentially enable customers through their own consoles to sign up for Atlas. So we're seeing a lot of interest and momentum from the hyperscalers um, uh, recently. Yeah, and of course, when we say hyperscalers, we're talking about AWS, uh, Azure, Google Cloud in particular. So um, let me go into two particular trends that I think I saw reflected in your results, you talked about them a bit on the call, DevOps and multi-cloud. So the idea that you're able to make developers more productive in a time when customers are paying attention to costs and the idea that building on MongoDB because you work across multiple different uh, cloud environments and also on-premise allows customers flexibility that can allow them to, to have more control over costs. How much is that influencing the momentum that you're feeling? Right. So software, it's clear, is central to almost every company's value proposition. So developers are key to make that happen. And with MongoDB, developer productivity just goes you know, um, incredibly high. So what that means is the more productive your developers are, 
the faster you can innovate. So that really resonates with customers, especially in an era where people are now trying to control costs, people want to be able to do more with less. So that's really resonated with customers. Second, our broad platform enables developers to build a wide variety of use cases from transactional to search to mobile to analytics. And so using MongoDB for a broad set of use cases really makes it even more compelling. And then in terms of the uh, multi-cloud angle, customers really want choice. They want choice to be able to leverage different services from different cloud providers. They want to maybe have geo redundancy in different parts of the world so they don't, they're not stuck on one region in one part of the world. And three, they want to be able to switch between cloud providers if, if they feel like it's the right thing for their business. And with MongoDB, they truly preserve optionality. So Dev, do you think uh, your results have implications for the, the broader space? Uh, because a lot of the commentary in the wake of your quarter was that you're uniquely situated to take share. How much of this can we apply to some of your peers? Well, I think you know what we're seeing um, 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 in our business is that our, our top line is still growing very, very quickly. So we're really pr proud of that. And two, that we're obviously demonstrating profitable growth by increasing our margins. And I think that's a message that's being you know, received well by investors. I can't really speak to other customers, I mean, other companies. Um, you know, we have heard that some of them are maybe not as um, comfortable about what's going on in the business, but you know, we're trying to obviously focus on serving our customers' needs well. We're going after a massive market. Uh, we feel like we've proven and hit escape velocity where, where people do view us as an important part of the tech stack. And so we feel quite bullish about the future. Yeah, and no, I'll definitely be watching HashiCorp's results on those DevOps and multi-cloud uh, storylines. But of course, uh, valuations matter here too. So how, how do you uh, react, well, not just react, but plan strategically from here? Do you lean into uh, focused sales and marketing spend to continue taking share? Uh, are, are you more focused on the partnerships that are giving you that sort of ecosystem boost um, with perhaps less control, but but better costs built into it? Well, we think the best companies, um, and especially in an economics environment like this, uh, focus on being very operationally efficient while planting seeds for future growth. And we're doing that. So we have a high bar for investments. And so where we see great returns, we continue to invest, whether it's on the product side or the broader market side. And where we see that maybe the investments, the returns are not as good, we're going to slow down and stop. And I think the whole notion is about profitable growth. Grow in a very disciplined way. And, and because we're going after big opportunity, we're still going to invest. What's happening in Europe? Um, the, the economies, a lot of the economies there are really struggling with inflation. Uh, there are uh, enterprise players who really have to be careful about costs. Is that uh, sort of added to the storyline there, or does it make it a more challenging environment to continue to grow in? Right, so actually our European consumption trends were also quite strong. We had called out in Q2 that they were a little weaker, and they've, they've come back, maybe not to historical levels, but the, the consumption trends have come back. But in general, you're right, in, in difficult economic environments, you know, we really you know, ask our, our, our people, especially our sales leaders, to rigorously qualify the forecast as you can imagine, there's more scrutiny on deals. Um, you know, approval levels are going up the organization. So it's really important for our teams to really qualify the opportunities, make sure they have a healthy pipeline and that, that we've qualified the forecast as well as we can so we don't get any last minute surprises. Yeah, well, this is a good surprise for some folks this morning on MongoDB stock up 19% after earnings. Dave, thank you. John, thanks for having me. 
Meantime, sentiment for stocks hitting some all-time lows, according to the All-America Economic Survey. And the public's view on crypto has been dropping significantly. Let's get to Steve Leisman with some of those details. Hey, Steve. You were too kind, Carl. I would describe it as Americans hating on stocks and hating on crypto in our CNBC All-America Economic Survey. Take a look at the results. See if you agree with me. 51% say now is a bad time to invest in stocks. Well, it was worse back in our last survey in July, but you have to go back. You look at uh, going back all the way March 18, just 30%. Those are kind of positive views and even neutral views through 2019. Then it came down and the pandemic, and it's worse than it was during the pandemic. Just 26% say now is a good time to invest. And that gap is the second worst, I believe, we've measured in the 15 years of the survey. And not much better for crypto. How the mighty have fallen, folks. Take a look from March 20, 2022. 19% uh, in March 22 were positive on crypto. 8% were, uh, are, are, are positive now. Neutral, 31%. 18% now. And then look here. Who has a negative view? 25% uh, in March. And that has now grown to 43% of the public having a somewhat or very negative view. And they want crypto regulated. 21% say there should be more regulation and oversight for cryptocurrency than stocks and bonds. 32% say as much, 25% say less, and 22% are unsure. But I think this is the important one. My friend Steck, if you could zoom in on that uh, right there. 58% of those who say they've invested in crypto want more or the same amount of regulation and oversight for crypto as they had for stocks and bonds. Who is negative on it? Take a look. Some of the key folks, men aged 18 to 49, a big change in their attitude. Postgrads, a big change in their attitude. And significantly, what we call in this survey the financial elite, those with a lot of money in the stock market and also those with higher incomes. Guys, am I not mistaken that it was just February of 2022 that crypto was the bell of the ball at the Super Bowl? Yeah, um, you know, and, and we'll go down in history with the Pets.com sock <laughs> puppet, uh, right, as, as a call at the top there. So, uh, Steve, those are great numbers, and they're not necessarily prognostications, right? This is, this is a, a pulse of the culture. It could be a buy it signal is, for some of this stuff. It is, but, but you know what, John? I've been thinking a lot about that, and I, I'm guessing you have too, which is to what extent does the public need to be confident in these in this asset class? Do they need to have a positive view on it for the asset class itself to work? While the use case of crypto is small, the confidence case has to be very large. Oh, yeah. While it's not an essential means for transacting, then the issue becomes as an asset class, as a replacement, as a hedge, or whatever you used it for, if the use case is low, the confidence case has to be large, and I think this industry has a, uh, a lot of work to do to rebuild that back up, to get it back into. Remember, it was just, what would you say, John? You know better than I. In the last year or so, we started calling this an asset class. Oh, yeah. I, I never really got to calling it an asset class, <laughs> personally. I was referring to stocks. Back at the beginning of the survey results you were, you were sharing about yeah. how people feel like now's not a good time right. to invest. That, it's really not right. a good time to have invested, which is different. Sure. Right? No, that's correct. And so the stock, stocks don't have necessarily 
by the way, they did back in 2000 when you had the Enron scandals. They've had their go at lack of confidence. But I don't think that's the issue right now. I think you're right. The issue is one of what is the outlook for the economy. Our broader survey, John, which, by the way, you can read online, shows that there's not a lot of confidence in the economy right now. There's concern about the outlook. And I think that ultimately is something that people are they don't have a perfect bad record, a perfect good record in being positive on stocks and it being a good market. In general, it tends to be coincident when stocks are up. People tend to have a good attitude towards stocks and that can be a, a good a good call or a bad call. In general, though, I think you want the retail investor on board for a solid rally. Keeping our finger on the pulse. Uh, Steve Leisman, thank Thanks, you. Jonathan. Now, speaking of a lack of confidence in stocks, let's get a gut check on travel tech. A few bear calls this morning affecting those stocks. Expedia, TripAdvisor, Booking Holdings, and Airbnb all in the red by more than 3%. Wolf Research downgrading the online travel sector to underweight, saying the travel demand is likely to moderate as the economy slows in 2023. And Morgan Stanley taking Airbnb down to underweight, cutting the price target to 80 bucks a share, noting slowing supply is a key risk to the stock. Carl, travel has been very popular over the past several months as things have opened back up. And I guess some are also wondering, has some of that travel been pulled forward, as we like to say, uh, with demand in a lot of other things? Yeah, uh, we've been talking about this a lot for a good part of the morning, whether or not we've reached that point, John, where a lot of that excess savings, which had been reserved for travel, is finally hitting its own endpoint. Some of the commentary in the downgrade, Wolf on Booking, uh, growing concerns about the company's European exposure. And by the way, Airbnb, the Morgan Stanley note, you say has an 80 target. The bear case is 60, and they cut their 23 EBITDA by about 8% as active listings are slowing. And that's not just uh, for next year. That's going out into a three-year range of, say, 23 to, 19, to 2025. Yeah, all that, as you said, on the backdrop of things like Jamie Dimon yesterday saying that midnight is mid-2023, right? That's when the consumer savings carriage turns into a pumpkin. Uh, how much does the economy shift between now and then? Do things stabilize? Do, do wages remain high? I don't know. Uh, but if not, there, there could be trouble. Yeah. Uh, we're going to watch that, that chart in particular, Airbnb. Still to come this hour, the CEO of Sentinel-1's with us. Uh, get a check on chips and a lot more on Meta's meltdown this week. Tech Check is just getting started. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Let's turn to social stocks this morning. We got Pinterest partnering with activist Elliott, uh, adding a, a portfolio manager to the board. Meta, meantime, facing a crackdown on targeted ads in the EU. And as for digital advertising, Paramount's Bob Backish offering his outlook on Squawk in the Street earlier this morning. Take a listen. I really think this is overblown. You know? Why? We have a cyclical problem in advertising. We've had them before. You could go back and look at the data. It's happened many times, including since 2000, and this too will turn. Uh, you know, we're using this as an opportunity to make some moves, really accelerate some moves, including in ad sales, where we uh, are reorganizing part of our sales force. Let's take a closer look at the ad landscape today this morning with Oppenheimer Managing Director Jason Helstein. Jason, great to have you back this morning. I wonder how you're processing a lot of the commentary, not just from uh, Bob, but a lot of the media companies last couple of weeks, and whether or not ads are truly a sort of uh, first in, last out when it comes to cyclical downturns. Sure. Um, I mean, on the first in, last out question, you really have kind of divide the universe. You have brand advertising, and it's, that is definitely you know, first in, last out. And then you have performance advertising, which is typically, you know, last in. Um, and so you kind of the, the, probably the best way to just describe the two, Google, um, you know, the, you know, they're almost all performance except for YouTube. Um, and even part of YouTube is performance. And then, you know, Meta has largely been mostly performance. Um, you know, whereas, you know, companies we cover like Oroku, and some of the brand companies like like Viacom, that's that's all brand. And that's how we would divide it up. Right. What did you make of this EU news yesterday regarding Meta and their ability to target? Um, I mean, the stock was down. There were several headlines uh, swirling around. How important was that one, though? Yeah, we this is connected to um, like prior privacy regulation, um, the, the GDPR and, and the idea that certain constituents don't think that Meta is properly complying um, with getting user permission. So um, I don't think that's necessarily why the stock was down. I mean, look, I think investors are broadly concerned that Apple and Google both hold the cards right now, controlling the operating system. And and that's going to put Meta, Facebook at a long-term competitive disadvantage. I think Mark Zuckerberg talked that, you know, recently at that, at a, uh, conference you guys covered. Um, and so I think that is just, that is broadly the main overhang on the stock as far as this one specific thing. Um, you know, I think that's kind of more of a nuance, uh, a nuisance than, than something we're actually worried about in the model. Jason, I think an important thing for investors to figure out is what is the next revolution in digital ads? Is it more on the end of knowing about individual audience members and being able to target them, which, you know, iOS changes and all kinds of other things have complicated? Or is it more about brand advertising within premium content and the direction that, that Netflix is moving in? And I guess, arguably, that TikTok occupies in a way. I, I think it's actually the intersection of those two. So the idea is today you still have, um, you know, the largest bucket of ad dollars um, in linear advertising with untargeted ads, right? So there's an enormous amount of waste of consumers seeing ads that are not relevant to them, either for gender reasons or geographic reasons or economic reasons, and they would just never be a, a buyer of that product um, or service. And so, you know, as you move to um, uh, connected TV, um, all advertising kind of moving programmatically, you can be much more efficient with your targeting 
and you can unlock those dollars to spend them other places. Okay. Again, at, at kind of its peak, you saw that with Meta. Um, that being said, Meta lost a lot of their advantage with the Apple privacy changes. So I think it's really the intersection of, of those two dynamics. So if it is, whose technology has pole position? Is it Alphabet's with Google? Sounds like it. So, uh, yeah, we think Google Alphabet very well positioned. You know, YouTube will struggle a bit as we move through um, what, what may be a recession over the next few quarters. But ultimately, they come out as very strong, you know, with cookies potentially going away. Their targeting technology will still have a, you know, a very strong seat at the table. Um, you know, we think Apple is going to continue to, um, I don't formally cover Apple, it's another analyst, but we think just Apple is it is serious about using their leverage with audience targeting. And then you get into the other platforms. We actually put a report out today on, on Roku. Um, you know, they're, they're the largest streaming platform in the U.S. with a third of households and really not have not embraced this kind of programmatic technology, but we think it's coming with their um, their new um, head of uh, their new president of advertising, and ultimately you got to look at usage, right? Meta still has a ton of usage. We think the threat of TikTok is actually um, starting to slow, and so while they are going through some challenges, we actually think they may be past the the worst of it, actually. Uh, wow, it's been it's been quite a run to the downside. Finally, you know, we, um, Pins is on uh, Jim's show tonight, uh, Bill Reddy, and I wonder if you think this uh, this uh, deal with Elliot allows them to start to build something more constructive. So, so we don't formally cover Pins, but I'll say it: anytime you have a, a super voting control, which you do with the uh, um, you know with the founder, it's really hard for an activist to be kind of a aggressive activist. They need to go in with kid gloves, and I think that's what you have here. That ultimately, you know, you've got um, Elliot who thinks that there is this the, the company's undervalued and wants to help um, add their credibility to the story, but has to do it in a in a much softer way. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing here. Interesting. Uh, certainly an interesting space for you right now, Jason, getting more interesting by the day. Look forward to talking next time. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Meanwhile, FTX's disgraced founder and former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried has tried to portray himself as an easygoing, laid-back executive who didn't know the extent of the issues at his now-bankrupt exchange. Kate Rooney has some new reporting that tells a different story. Kate? Hi, John. Good morning. Yeah, we've been talking to half a dozen people who worked closely with Bankman-Fried and a very different picture is emerging. Some insiders say that Bankman-Fried really put on an act for the public by portraying himself as an easygoing CEO, that is the persona most of us have seen in interviews recently, especially in his media appearances where he denied committing fraud and says he was unaware of a commingling of funds between FTX and Alameda. But people who worked closely with him do describe a pattern of ignoring advice of his top executives, attacking employees who spoke up and focusing too much on partnerships. A key example, three sources pointed to, a failed Taylor Swift deal. According to those people, FTX had been on track to sign a $100 million partnership with a Grammy winner earlier this year. They described it as a disaster internally because of the price tag and a lack of clarity on what they were getting other than Swift NFTs. But they say Bankman-Fried stayed committed despite some really begging him to pull the plug. They say it fits into a pattern of him ignoring top lieutenants and going it alone. That deal ultimately fell through and Swift declined to comment. While FTX insiders say some people questioned his decisions, he surrounded himself with a crew of what they called yes-men and women. Two sources used the word insular, 
One former top executive said SBF, as he's also known, had a tendency to chew out employees who disagreed with him in a way that deterred others from speaking up. According to one top executive, his knee-jerk reaction was to throw people under the bus, as he put it. We did get a comment from Bankman Freed. He says he disagrees with that categorization of his leadership style. And uh, guys, whether or not he was in total control of FTX is one of the key factors in this ongoing bankruptcy and criminal investigations. Back to you. Uh, Kate, we're certainly going to see if uh, the hearings on the Hill adding any more intelligence to what we've heard from your reporting and some of his appearances. Thanks, uh, Kate Rooney. Meantime, uh, Taiwan Semi already locking in some customers for that new fab in Arizona. Apple CEO Tim Cook, AMD CEO Lisa Su saying they are planning to buy chips from the new plant. We'll talk more about the implications for the chip sector and manufacturing in general in this country when we come back in a minute. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Dominic Chu. Here's what's happening at this hour. In a stark turnaround, China has eased some of parts of its zero COVID policy and strategy. Officials are rolling back rules that confine millions of people to their homes and spark protests and demands for President Xi to resign. China also reporting its biggest pullback in trade in two and a half years. Exports sank nearly 9 percent, more than twice what economists were expecting. Campbell Soup is extending gains on strong quarterly results. Margins and organic growth topped estimates, and the company raised its guidance. Campbell says it's being helped by consumers who are cutting back on eating out. And Brown Foreman, on the other hand, getting hurt by tighter profit margins and revenues that missed analyst forecasts. The Jack Daniels parent company now down 7% despite raised sales guidance. So we'll keep an eye on those companies. John, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks. The Nasdaq, meanwhile, in the red again today. It's now down four days in a row. Let's get over to the Nasdaq and our Christina Partsinevelis, who has a look at what is moving. Christina. Thank you, John. So like you said, the Nasdaq slightly negative right now. Uh, and then this is as investors are debating how bad this looming recession might be against uh, optimism around easing COVID protocols in China. But the indice is still, what, 30 percent off its 52-week high? That's an almost 5,000-point drop. What we are seeing today, cloud names are higher with the WCLD ETF up uh, ever so slightly, just barely. But that's helped, of course, by MongoDB, which is up a whopping 18 percent after a surprise quarterly profit and forecasting another one for the current quarter. Uh, the biggest names right now in the NASDAQ 100, you've got, I should say, the biggest laggards, Airbnb, Booking Holdings and Tesla. Morgan Stanley downgrading Airbnb on travel demand concerns, and that's impacting the entire sector. Let's switch over to semiconductor names, which are pretty much mixed right now. Qualcomm, Intel are lower, but Applied Materials is one of the stronger players on the NASDAQ 100, up over almost oh, 1.5% right now after Loop Capital initiated a buy on the company. And then lastly, Bitcoin and Ether. They're still struggling, both on pace for their worst year since 2018, and that's dragging down Coinbase, which is what? Barely positive today, but down 26% just in the last month or so. Carl? 
Uh, pretty incredible. Thank you, Christina. Christina Parts Nevelos. Let's uh, keep with chips here. Uh, the president, as you know, joining the CEOs of Apple and NVIDIA to visit TSMC's construction site in Arizona yesterday with more companies diversifying their supply chains. What is the read through for semi stocks at large? Let's bring in Bank of America Managing Director Vivek Arya for a closer look. Vivek, it's great to have you back. Um, it sounds like you think the most obvious trade is going to be around uh, semi-capital equipment, but that that trade could last for several years. Yes, thank you, Carl. Good morning. I think when we uh, look at what happened yesterday, I think it's great news for the U.S. I think it's uh, very good to have a more diversified uh, supply chain. But when you think about this from the narrow perspective of just the semiconductor industry, it doesn't really de change demand, right? Who cares where you are producing these chips? As long as you know, you're producing them and the demand really follows the cycle and the product cycles. If you look on the supply side and you look at what Taiwan Semi plans to do, they were basically planning to move 1% of their capacity to the US. Now they will move 3 to 4% of their capacity to the US. So the point is that even uh, a few years from now, 90% plus of leading edge chips will still be produced in Taiwan. So we are not really going to be independent of that uh, dynamic. But it is true that over the next few years, there's a lot more fab construction that will happen in U.S. and uh, Europe and Japan and even in China, uh, despite all the restrictions. And I think that's really uh, very positive for the semicap equipment names, uh, KLA, Applied Materials, uh, LAM Research. I think they are on the sweet spot um, of this cycle because they benefit from all the fab build-outs of the CHIPS Act. This is also a space where all the cycle cuts and the China restriction cuts are priced in, and the valuation makes a lot of sense. So semi-cap equipment is, is one of the first places I would be looking to to add money in semis here. Yeah, you can see on the chart where some of the China concerns weighed in, but then recovered on, on some of these more uh, reshoring efforts. I am curious about the SOX overall. It sounds like you think, yeah, we might get a bit of a seasonal boost this quarter, but once we turn the calendar, things get more challenging. Can you talk about that and how much it's related to Europe? Yeah, Carl, so it's interesting that the SOX peaked in December of last year. Nobody was talking about a recession then just as nobody is talking about an upturn or the next cycle right now. And I think the, key, the point I'm trying to make here is that semiconductor sales and semiconductor stocks peak well before the cycle turns, but they also trough well before the cycle turns. So our baseline assumption is that the semiconductor uh, industry started to see the slowdown very early this year in Q2 of this year when the sales peaked. I think Q4 or Q1 is the bottom of the cycle. And if you're right, I think we actually have a soft lining ahead because compares start to get easier for semiconductor stocks. So we are actually quite positive on semiconductor stocks going into next year. That doesn't, of course, disregard the fact that we could still have some negative headlines in Q4 or Q1. But overall, as an industry, we think that we are in front of a soft landing. And if the sales start to recover in the second half of next year, then we think semiconductor stocks are going to bottom right about now. Vivek, I want to call out the implications of this TSMC investment in the U.S., uh, the implications for Intel. It seems to up the pressure on Intel to execute on, on its process technology roadmap. They've got to not only catch up to TSMC, they have to pass them with this additional investment that TSMC is making, right? Absolutely. I think Intel faces uh, three tough issues. Uh, first is over half of their core business is exposed to the PC uh, market. That's a very tough market uh, to be in. We are past growth in that market, and they are losing market share to both Apple doing its own processors and to AMD. 
Second problem they face is in the core data center and the server market, AMD continues to produce better products and gain more market share. So Intel faces tough challenges in its core uh, business. Now, when it comes to getting into the foundry uh, side, the problem they have is that if they cannot produce leading edge chips for their own products, how can customers come to them to act as a foundry? And then there is a business model conflict. Most of the customers that you saw at the ceremony yesterday, Apple, um, you know, uh, Qualcomm, uh, AMD, NVIDIA, uh, they all to some extent compete against Intel. So I think there's a lot of conflict of interest in that uh, business model. So both, I think the lack of technology, secondly, this business model conflict, and third and most importantly is, if I can get reliable capacity from TSMC outside of Taiwan in the US, I have no reason to look for another foundry partner. So when uh, benchmark-wise road, you know, on the road, does Intel have to prove that their process technology is good enough and that they can produce uh, well enough for the foundry model that they're coming up with to work? What, what's a date, a quarter in the future that you would give them? Sure, uh, so I don't think it happens for several years uh, for the reason that first you have got to get uh, the manufacturing technology right for your own products. And then once you get that right, Remember, Foundry is a very different business model. Foundry is a services-oriented model. That's why Taiwan Semi, Global Foundries, these companies are pure play foundries because they don't have that conflict of interest in trying to compete against their own uh, customers. So Foundry is a very different business model. So if, let's say, Intel gets their manufacturing right in the next one to two years, by the time it gets the services uh, side ready, it could be another few years. So we are very cautious on Intel's uh, foundry business for the next several years. Uh, interesting. Uh, so many layers to this business, Rebecca. It's kind of hard to understand at times, but appreciate your guidance as always. Talk soon. Pleasure. Vivek Thank you. Arya. Now coming up, we're going to speak exclusively to the CEO of Sentinel One. That stock is having a volatile morning. It's been up. It's been down uh, after reporting third quarter results. Right now, it is down fractionally. And Tech Check is back in a moment. Former Theranos President Ramesh Sunny Balwani awaiting sentencing today. That's after Elizabeth Holmes received a more than 11-year sentence just last month. Let's get to our Scott Cohn, who was outside the courthouse in San Jose this morning. Morning, Scott. Good morning, Carl. Sonny Balwani and his attorneys can't feel at all good about today. Uh, after all, as you said, Elizabeth Holmes got an 11-year sentence. She was only convicted on four counts in the Theranos fraud. Sonny Balwani was convicted on 12 counts. She was acquitted of lying to patients. He was convicted on those counts. And so uh, he could face a pretty stiff sentence when he goes before Judge Edward Davila today. Sonny Balwani, of course, the former president of Theranos and famously Elizabeth Holmes' ex-boyfriend. He is 19 years her senior. Uh, they met when she was just out of high school. He eventually uh, invested nearly $5 million of his own money into the company, came on as chief operating officer. Uh, the government wants a 15-year sentence. He faces a maximum of 20. Balwani's attorneys argue that he did not profit from the fraud. He was not like Elizabeth Holmes. He wasn't seeking fame or fortune. And they want just probation. We'll see how that flies. Uh, he, regardless, is certain to appeal this sentence when it comes down today. 
And speaking of appeals and Elizabeth Holmes, we're now getting some word about the potential outlines of her appeal. This from a court filing earlier this week among the areas that they are likely to take on. The government's expert witnesses, court rulings on evidence that were some that was let in, some that was kept out. Inconsistencies, the defense says, between her case and the Sonny Balwani case, and that infamous incident in which the government star witness, uh, former lab director Adam Rosendorf, appeared at Holmes' house uh, in August and appeared to regret some of his testimony. In that uh, filing, Holmes asked to remain free on bail rather than report to prison on April 27th, as Judge Edward Davila has ordered. Uh, the attorneys argue she has strong ties to her partner and family, including her son and soon-to-be-born child, that incentivizes her to comply with her conditions of release. Of course, Holmes' first pregnancy delayed her trial. She is uh, very pregnant with the second child. And a reminder that it's been nearly a year since she was convicted and about four years since Theranos shut down. Carl, John? Scott, thank you. We'll of course continue to watch that. Meanwhile, Fanatic's valuation reaching $31 billion after a new $700 million round. That story is on CNBC.com. More Tech Check next. Welcome back. Let's get a gut check on Carvana today. Those shares tumbling this morning as bankruptcy fears continue to grow. Reports saying creditors, including Apollo and PIMCO, signed a cooperation agreement to work uniformly in negotiations with the company. Apollo and PIMCO hold around $4 billion of Carvana's unsecured debt, around 70% of the total outstanding. That makes room for a new bear case today out of Webbush. A new note today downgrading the stock from neutral to underperform, reducing the target to $1. That's down from 9 saying the restructuring could, quote, leave the equity worthless in a bankruptcy scenario, John, sort of keeping with some of the notes we've gotten from the sell side over the last couple of weeks. Ouch, what a chart. I mean, th those are 200s there you were seeing on the left. Meanwhile, senior leaders from our CNBC Tech Executive Council weighing in on recession spending. Take a listen. I think in terms of challenges that the industry is going to face in 2023, is people are really going to want to make sure that they're justifying their spend, figuring out where to invest that next dollar. Individuals are going to be looking for new ways to save, grow, and invest money and look for recession-proof areas. For us, obviously, we're um, we a public sector, so we are uh, dependent on our citizens and tax revenue, so that's always a concern for us. For us, it would be really doubling down on what our customers need when it comes to their financial security, including things like insurance, things like asset management, and things about advising them on their financial plan and lives. And you can get more exclusive insights and content available on cnbc.com slash TEC. Tech Check is back in a moment. Welcome back. Sentinel One stock has been choppy this morning after missing analyst estimates for net new annualized recurring revenue, reporting guidance in line with expectations. The company noting that while cybersecurity remains critical, macro headwinds are causing companies to tighten the belt. Joining us now in a CNBC exclusive, Sentinel One's CEO, Tomer Weingarten. Tomer, uh, the growth of Sentinel One continues to be impressive. I mean, doubling year over year, but you're hitting this macro and there are questions about how long that growth can continue. What signal are you getting from your customers? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, customer intent is definitely there. And you see that, um, you know, really by the record pipelines that we continue to see quarter after quarter, um, still delivering, you know, triple digit growth in this macro environment is something that 
also gives us a lot of confidence in our ability to continue to grow. With that, I mean, we're obviously not blind to what we're seeing out of customers, which is elongated sales cycles, um, you know, very typical right now, uh, more scrutiny on budgets, definitely people right-sizing their purchases. And as we kind of look to the kind of next year, next fiscal year, we, we want to take a conservative approach as to what growth might look like. And we actually want to anchor more um, you know, on our profitability and our path to profitability and make sure we hit that no matter what, no matter what, um, you know, economic scenario or growth scenario we actually deliver. So to us, that also provides for a better guide. So I wonder, though, looking at this from the investor perspective, what that means, you tend to get uh, when the analysts come out with notes and people are looking at the multiple that you deserve, a higher multiple because of that strong top line growth. But if you're managing to hit those free cash flow targets that you have for the next fiscal year, and then that operational profitability uh, target that you have for the one after that, how quickly can you grow on the top? Yeah, I, I think it um, it really is more dependent on, on market conditions than our own growth. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we're going to work harder and we're going to do better and we're going to try and grow as fast as we can. But we first and foremost want to make sure that by FY25, we can be um, a, profitable, a profitable company. And, and that seems, um, you know, a, a reasonable target for us. Um, you know, we don't really care about the multiples at this point in time. We just want to make sure that we continue and hit the envelope of spend that we have um, on the flip side. Again, we're going to finish this year right around 100% of growth, which is still, you know, massive, massive amount of growth. We've 5X'd our ARR um, since IPO, which was about seven quarters ago. <clears throat> and we've, um, at the same time, cut spend on, an, on a percentage of EBIT uh, by half. So we, we've made tremendous progress. Tom, I wonder if you can characterize uh, sort of the way the customer thinks right now. Uh, we talk about these budgets in, in the framework of cost discipline, but what happens if um, another risk catalyst happens, if there's a, if there's a breach across industry? Um, how, how much do budgets change uh, as a result of events, so to speak, during the course of a year? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, the, the nature of cybersecurity hadn't changed. I mean, the, the core thesis, you know, cybersecurity is a must have. You got to have it. There's no no one out there that's not running an endpoint protection software like the one that, that we sell. So that that remains intact. I think what we're seeing out there is customers really opting for the for the core offering. I mean, they, they want to make sure that they got the fundamentals right. And, and everything that could be a nice to have, everything that could be deferred is being deferred. Every license that you don't necessarily need for today, you know, you're not buying for expansion, you're not buying for the future, you're buying for the right now. And I think that's the most prevalent, um, you know, theme we're seeing. The other one is just, you know, customers obviously um, need to hit their own OPEX envelope. So they're coming in and they're asking for more concessions. And all in all, I mean, you know, we've been able to not only um, you know, maintain a really healthy price point, but at the same time, even grow our gross margin. So we're just trying to work with customers to make sure that we can do what's right for them as they're going through this macroeconomic, you know, condition as well as we do. Yeah, threading that needle, strong growth, targeting profitability, the stock about flat, choppy, as I said, in the morning's trade. Tomer from Sentinel One, thank you. No, thank you so much. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. In the meantime, Tech Check is back in just a moment.
Get you an update on a story we told you about yesterday. Microsoft entering that 10-year commitment to bring Call of Duty to Nintendo after offering a similar deal to Sony. That's, of course, only if Microsoft's deal with Activision Blizzard goes through. Microsoft's president, Brad Smith, uh, plans to meet with three Democratic members of the FTC later today. A spokesman for the company telling CNBC, quote, As we've said before, we are prepared to address the concerns of regulators, including the FTC and Sony, to ensure the deal closes with confidence. We'll still trail Sony and Tencent in the market after the deal closes, and together Activision and Xbox will benefit gamers and developers and make the industry more competitive. A spokesperson for Sony giving no comment, John, but certainly an echo of uh, Smith's op-ed in the journal this week. For sure, for sure, Carl. And one more thing, despite or maybe because of the tech downturn in public markets, private equity ready to pick up the pieces. Toma Bravo announcing what it's billing as the largest tech buyout fund ever at a whopping $32.4 billion. The firm showing no plans to slow down even after a busy year of taking companies private and a plan for about $11 billion in March, sale point for about seven in April, and four drop and pin identity for more than $2 billion each in October, Carl. Uh, that's pretty interesting. Certainly going to get um, uh, the question swirling about uh, the appetite for tech, John, at least in the PA space, and sort of looking at new comparisons between valuations there and in public equities. Yeah, and when you look at that DevOps category, we started off the show talking a bit about that with David Acheria from MongoDB. HashiCorp is reporting a bit later and has been rumored, it's been rumored that Cisco or others might be eyeing HashiCorp to see if it really wants to stay public. Uh, th there are lots of buyers still out there in the market, especially given the valuation reset that we're getting. And with these earnings, we'll see where it goes, Carl. Yeah, uh, certainly inflation is going to remain a big uh, part of that equation as we're going to get a lot of uh, indicators in the next few days. Michigan inflation expectations, PPI Friday, and of course the big one, CPI, headed our way uh, next week. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.